Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. The death penalty. It is a very touchy subject here in the United States, with valid arguments made by each side of the debate. In the U.S., there are currently 25 states with the death penalty, 21 without, and 4 with a governor-imposed moratorium. As of July 1, 2019, there are 2,656 inmates on death row in the United States. Yet at one time, there was a national moratorium on capital punishment a moratorium that spanned from 1967 to 1976, until the execution of the subject of tonight's episode, a career criminal from the time he was a teenager, a man in and out of the prison system, who eventually took the lives of two men, and as the consequence was the first man in the United States to be executed in almost a decade. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Gary Mark Gilmore. that uh, the people, especially the people of Utah, they want the uh, death penalty, but they don't want executions. And when it became a reality that they might have to carry one out, well, I started backing off on it. Well, I took them literal and serious when they sentenced me to death. Gary Mark Gilmore was born in McCamie, Texas, on December 4, 1940, the second of four sons to Frank and Bessie Gilmore. The other sons were Frank Jr., Galen, and the writer and music journalist Mikhail Gilmore. Frank Harry Gilmore Sr. was an alcoholic con man. He had other wives and families, none of whom he supported. On a whim, he married Bessie Brown, a Mormon outcast from Provo, Utah, in Sacramento, California. Gary was born while they were living in Texas under the pseudonym of Kaufman to avoid the law. Frank christened his son Faye Robert Kaufman, but once they left Texas, Bessie changed it to Gary Mark. This name change proved to be a sore point years later. Frank's mother Faye kept the original Faye Kaufman birth certificate, and when Gary found it two decades later, he assumed he must either be illegitimate or someone else's son. He seized on this as the reason that he and his father never got along. He became very upset and walked out on his mother when she tried to explain the name change to him. 
the theme of illegitimacy, real or imagined, was common in the Gilmore family. Frank Sr.'s mother, Faye Gilmore, once told Bessie that Frank Sr.'s father was a famous magician who had passed through Sacramento, where she was living. Bessie researched this from the library and concluded that Frank was the illegitimate son of Harry Houdini. In fact, Houdini was only 16 years old in 1890, the year of Frank Gilmore's birth, and did not begin his career as a magician until the following year. As such, whether fame meant that Frank Sr.'s father was someone who would later become known as a famous musician may never be known. Mikhail Gilmore, Gary's youngest brother, believes the story to be false, but has stated that both his father and mother believed it. During Gary's childhood, the family frequently relocated through the western United States, with Frank supporting them by selling fake magazine subscriptions. Gary had a troubled relationship with his father, whom his youngest brother, Mikhail, described as a, quote, cruel and unreasonable man, unquote. Frank Gilmore Sr. was strict and quick to anger and would often whip his sons, Frank Jr., Gary, and Galen with a razor strap whip or a belt for little or no reason. Less often, he would beat his wife. The children got beaten frequently for no reason or what he considered a, a good reason. Sometimes he would even sneak up behind them and hide behind the door when they came in and just attack them for, for no real reason. He mellowed somewhat with age. Mikhail reported that Frank whipped him only once and never did it again after Mikhail told him, quote, I hate you, unquote. In addition, Frank and Bessie would argue loudly and verbally abuse each other. Frank would anger Bessie by calling her crazy and defame Brigham Young, the second president and prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as, quote, Brigham Young, and Bessie would retaliate by calling him a cat liquor Catholic and threatening to kill him some night. This abuse continued for years, and it caused considerable turmoil within the Gilmore family. In 1952, the Gilmore family settled in Portland, Oregon. As an adolescent, Gary began engaging in petty crime. Although Gilmore had an IQ test score of 133, he gained high scores on both aptitude and achievement tests and showed artistic talent, he dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. He ran away from home with a friend up to Texas, returning to Portland after several months. At the age of 14, Gary started a small car theft ring with his friends, which resulted in his first arrest. He was released to his father with a warning. Two weeks later, he was back in court on another car theft charge. The court remanded him to the McLaren Reform School for Boys in Woodburn, Oregon, from which he was released the following year. He was sent to Oregon State Correctional Institute on another car theft charge in 1960 and was released later that year. It is true that my father went to great lengths to keep Gary out of jail. I really have to wonder if there was a, a part of my father that, you know, that couldn't help but feel sorry for his children and what he had done to them. And, and, and perhaps in some ways that was the part of my father that also loved Gary and wanted to protect him. In 1961, Frank Sr., Gary's father, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He died at the end of July 1962. While Gary was in a Rocky Butte jail in Portland, facing charges of driving without a license, a jail guard told Gary when his father died. Despite his dysfunctional relationship with his father, Gary was devastated and tried to kill himself by slitting his wrists. After his dad died, Gilmore got into more and more trouble. As the wilder side of him came out, he was drunk a lot, 
he faced assault and armed robbery charges again in 1964 and was given a 15-year prison sentence as a habitual offender and sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. He said it was like walking up to the edge of hell and looking over and maintaining your balance as well as you can. He told me one time in one of his letters that the only affordable emotion that you have when you're in prison is anger. A prison psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder with intermittent psychotic decompensation. He was granted conditional release in 1972 to live on weekdays in a halfway house in Eugene, Oregon and study art at a community college. Gilmore never registered, and within a month, he was arrested and convicted of armed robbery. Due to his violent behavior in prison, Gilmore was transferred in 1975 from Oregon to the federal prison in Marion, Illinois, at the time, a maximum security facility. Gilmore was conditionally paroled in April of 1976 and went to Provo, Utah, to live with a distant cousin, Brenda Nicole, who tried to help him find work. Gilmore worked briefly at his uncle Vern DeMeco's shoe repair shop and then for an insulation company owned by Spencer McGrath, but he soon returned to his previous lifestyle of stealing, drinking, and getting into fights. Every girl that walked in, he'd whistle at him, you know, and everything else. I had to talk to him every day. You don't do that. He said, well, did you see? Yeah, i seen it. But you don't follow it, you don't chase it, you don't whistle. He didn't like that at all. Gilmore, then 35, had a relationship with Nicole Barrett Barker, a 19-year-old widow and divorcee who had two young children. The relationship was at first casual, but soon became intense and strained due to Gilmore's aggressive behavior and pressure from Baker's family to stop seeing him. On the evening of July 19, 1976, Gilmore robbed and murdered Max Jensen, a gas station employee in Orem, Utah. The next evening, he robbed and murdered Benny Bushnell, a motel manager in Provo. Although both men had complied with his demands, he murdered each of them. The young men were each ordered to lie down and then were shot in the head. Both were students at Brigham Young University, both left widows with infants. While disposing of the 22 caliber pistol used in both killings, Gilmore accidentally shot himself in the right hand, leaving a trail of blood to the service garage where he had left his truck to be repaired prior to murdering Bushnell. Garage mechanic Michael Simpson witnessed Gilmore hiding the gun in the bushes, seeing the blood on Gilmore's crudely bandaged right hand when he approached to pay for the repairs to his truck, and hearing on the police scanner of the shootings at the nearby motel, Simpson wrote down Gilmore's registration plate number and called the police. Gilmore's cousin Brenda turned him into police shortly after he phoned her asking for bandages and painkillers for the injury to his hand. 
the Utah State Police apprehended Gilmore as he tried to drive out of Provo, and he gave up without attempting to flee. Although he was charged with the murders of Jensen and Bushnell, the Jensen case was never brought to trial, apparently because there were no eyewitnesses. He said, I read the obituaries. They were young, they were missionaries and had young families. He said, I really feel bad. And he said, I ought to die for that. I said, do you want to die? And he said, do you want to die? And I said, no, I don't have any desire. He said, I really don't either. But he said, I ought to for that. I'm afraid that I'd do it again. Gilmore's murder trial began at the Provo Courthouse on October 5, 1976, and lasted two days. Peter Orio, a motel guest, testified that he saw Gilmore in the motel registration office that night. After taking the money, Gilmore allegedly ordered Bushnell to lie down on the floor and then shot him. Gerald F. Wilkes, an FBI ballistics expert, matched the two shell casings and the bullet that killed Bushnell to the gun hidden in the bush, and the patrolman testified that he had traced Gilmore's trail of blood to that same bush. Gilmore's two court-appointed lawyers, Michael Epslin and Craig Snyder, made no attempts to cross-examine the majority of the state's witnesses and rested without calling any witnesses for the defense. Gilmore protested and the following day asked the judge if he could take the stand in his own defense, perhaps arguing that due to the dissociation and lack of control he felt at the time, he had a good case for insanity. His attorneys presented their findings of four separate psychiatrists, all whom had said that Gilmore was aware of what he was doing and that he knew it was wrong at the time. While he did have an antisocial personality disorder, which may have been aggravated by drinking and drugs, he did not meet the legal criteria for insanity, and Gilmore withdrew his request. On October 7th, the jury retired to deliberate, and by midday they had returned with a guilty verdict. Later that day, the jury unanimously recommended that the death penalty, due to the special circumstances of the crime, be imposed. Gary chose not to pursue habeas corpus, relief in federal court. His mother, Bessie, sued for a stay of execution on his behalf, in a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his mother's claim. The court's per curiam opinion said that the defendant had waived his rights by not pursuing them. At the time, Utah had two methods of execution, firing squad or hanging. Believing a hanging could be botched, Gilmore chose the former, declaring, quote, I'd prefer to be shot, unquote. The execution was set for November 15th at 8 a.m.,
Against his express wishes, Gilmore received several stays of execution through the efforts of the ACLU. The last of these occurred just hours before the rescheduled execution date of January 17th. That stay was overturned at 7.30 a.m., and the execution was allowed to proceed as planned. At a Board of Pardons hearing in November of 1976, Gilmore said of the efforts by the ACLU and others to prevent his execution, quote, They always want to get in on the act. I don't think they have ever really done anything effective in their lives. I would like them all, including that group of reverends and rabbis from Salt Lake City, to butt out. This is my life. This is my death. It's been sanctioned by the courts that I die, and I accept that, unquote. During the time that Gilmore was on death row awaiting his execution, he attempted suicide twice. The first time on November 16th after the first stay was issued, and again one month later on December 17th. Gilmore was executed on January 17, 1977, at 8.07 a.m. by firing squad at Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. The night before, Gilmore had requested an all-night gathering of his friends and family at the prison mess hall. On the evening before his execution, he was served a last meal of steak, potatoes, milk, and coffee, but consumed only the milk and coffee. His uncle, Vern Damico, who attended the gathering, later claimed to have smuggled in three small Jack Daniels whiskey bottles, which Gilmore supposedly consumed. In the morning, at the time of the execution, Gilmore was transported to the abandoned cannery behind the prison, which served as its death house. He was strapped to a chair with a wall of sandbags placed behind him to trap the bullets. Five gunmen, local police officers, stood concealed behind a curtain with five small holes through which they aimed their rifles. When asked for any last words, Gilmore simply replied, quote, Let's do it. The Reverend Thomas Mearsom, the Roman Catholic prison chaplain, administered the last rites to Gilmore. After the prison physician cloaked him in a black hood, Gilmore uttered his last words to Mearsman, Dominus Vobiscum, Latin translation is, The Lord be with you. And Mearsman replied, Et cum spirita tuo, and with your spirit. In Utah, firing squads consisted of five volunteer law enforcement officers from the county in which the conviction of the offender took place. The five executioners were equipped with 30-30 caliber rifles and off-the-shelf Winchester 150-grain silver-tipped ammunition. The condemned was restrained and hooded, and the shots were fired at a distance of 20 feet aiming at the chest.
Prison officials stated that the firing squad comprised of four men with live rounds and one with a blank, so that the shooters could not be certain as to who fired the fatal shots. However, upon inspection of the clothes worn by his brother Gary at the execution, Mikhail Gilmore noted five holes in the shirt. According to his memoir, Shot in the Heart, quote, the state of Utah apparently had taken no chances on the morning that they put my brother to death, unquote. Gilmore had requested that some of his organs be donated for transplant purposes. Within hours of the execution, two people received his corneas. His body was sent for autopsy and was cremated later that day. The following day, his ashes were scattered from an airplane over Spanish Fork, Utah. It's surprising that Gary Gilmore was the first person to be executed after the reinstatement of capital punishment in the United States. In no way am I trying to downplay his cold-blooded killing of two men. I just would think that there would have been more prisoners with far more heinous crimes that were more deserving. After the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a new series of death penalty statutes in the 1976 decision Gregg v. Georgia, he became the first person in almost 10 years to be executed in the United States. These new statutes avoided the problems under the 1972 decision in Furman v. Georgia, which had resulted in earlier death penalty statutes being deemed as, quote, cruel and unusual punishment, and therefore unconstitutional, unquote. The Supreme Court had previously ordered all states to commute death sentences to life imprisonment after Furman v. Georgia. I try my best to stay out of political or philosophical discussions on this show, and like I said, there are valid arguments on each side. That being said, is it fair punishment to take a life for a life, or is it more of a punishment to make the person rot for the rest of their lives in a cell? Are there crimes that are so heinous that we cannot allow the person to live for fear that they might escape to offend again? Or does the chance that even one person is wrongly put to death by the state, does that negate all other legitimate executions? These are questions for smarter minds than mine. But for now, capital punishment is the law in half the states, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetruckers slash. There you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the Age of Radio Syndicate. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. 
You can also find me on Instagram at michael.pritt81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.